Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 4 You must learn! If there was one thing I learned from my hip-hop heroes as a child growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was that if I wanted to be a rapper, I had to be good. No, fuck that, not good. I had to be the best. I had to have the wittiest metaphors, the most creative punchlines, and an excellent delivery to boot. To achieve that, I became the world's biggest rap nerd. I studied the rhymes of all my favorite rappers like Big Daddy Kane, Rakim, KRS-One, and Chuck D. Each time a new rapper came on the scene, I'd pick out what I liked about each one of them. I listened to their vocal tones, where they took breaths, what defined their individual rap styles, which words in each sentence they would make rhyme and why. I paid close attention to their cadences and listened to the different places where their words were emphasized and again, tried to figure out why. And I'd analyze whether or not their particular nuances would work for me. When a rapper came out that I didn't like, my self-education techniques were much the same. I taught myself how not to sound and nailed down for myself why I didn't deem them worthy of my fandom. This was not a hobby for me, it was my life. I was a walking, lyric and delivery sponge with a brain that could compare, contrast and download with the agility and ease of a supercomputer. But this wasn't work at all, this was fun. Before the Rap Summit show I had never recorded in a real studio before. Mario and I were doing whatever it was we thought we were doing, and Macadamian and I weren't a group long enough to record anything other than a live freestyle performance on a karaoke stage of a county fair in Durham. We rapped over Young MC's Bust a Move because it was the only rap instrumental available. How's that for a history lesson on rap's lack of popularity in the 90s? But when it came to a beat that I could call my own, a recording booth, and an actual engineer, it was foreign to me, until I met Melvin. Nobody I knew was as devoted to music as Melvin was. Nobody I knew had ever dropped out of high school in ninth grade and left home because they were so focused on making music. His mother didn't get it. Mel was only about a year and a half older than I was, but he was like a wise old man who had grown sour because of the realities that life had shown him. At age 14, after a less than perfect childhood, he found himself living like a nomad on the couches of various friends and relatives. Somehow, though, he always managed to own or at least have access to recording equipment. Rhonda had introduced us early on. I was amazed at how at 16 years old, Melvin was like a teacher to me from the first time we sat down to create, and it was unreal how much music knowledge he possessed. We recorded my very first song, Funky Winker Bean, for the Rap Summit performance. I'll never forget the look on my mother's face when she dropped me off in Bragtown Projects in North Durham the Saturday afternoon that he and I convened to record for the first time. She wore a veil of calm, but her eyes were filled with concern and her lips were sealed tightly. So, my mother said, obviously trying not to be judgmental or question my decision-making abilities, this is it? Yep, I said, trying not to look her in the eyes. Bragtown was known as one of Durham's most notorious housing projects. Whether its reputation for violence was accurate, we were outsiders who would never know the real truth and could only assume that perhaps it wasn't safe. Okay, she said with a false sense of comfort. Have fun, call me when you're done. I closed the door behind me and never looked back. I knew that this was where I needed to be at that moment. It was as if I was being summoned. For me, it wasn't a potentially rough neighborhood, but rather the place where I'd be making music, my music. Melvin shared a tiny room with two other young men who his friend's mother had also taken in. The setup was inconvenient, unprofessional at best. 
All of his equipment was set up next to a messy twin-sized bed, leaving minimal space to walk or even stand. I sat on the edge of the bed, gripping my wrap notebook tightly and waiting for instruction. The mood was awkward. Mel didn't usually look away from what he was doing, so I wasn't sure if he actually wanted me to be there. So what kind of beat you like? He asked. Uh, I said, staring at him blankly. At the time, my favorite song was Who Got the Props by Black Moon. Their MC Buckshot Shorty had a vocal delivery that I was patterning mine after. He was young, so his voice was a bit higher in tone like mine was. His delivery was bold and powerful, and he could weave words together like tapestry. Each syllable was like an instrument that he played right along with the beat. It was almost as if the pattern of his words were as important as what he was saying. The fact that his lyrics were creative and his metaphors were crafty made his rhymes duly great. The average listener wasn't likely sitting around analyzing all of these factors, and I knew that. But I knew Buckshot was special, and if I could do what he did, then I'd be special too. I blurted out the first thing that came to mind. Um, you got anything like who got the props? Okay, who got the props, he said matter-of-factly. Melvin started thumbing through stacks of records that leaned against the wall on the floor next to the bed we sat on. He pulled one out as if he knew exactly what he was looking for and where it was, just by the color of the thin edge of the record's jacket. In one graceful motion, he took out the vinyl swiftly, flipped it between his open palms and placed it on the turntable. He lifted the arm of the turntable up, holding the small plastic piece that stuck out from the head of the needle, and laid it on the record in an exact spot just so. Before the record could even start, Melvin put the tips of his first three fingers on it and began scratching the first drum beat of the song. It looked like a magician doing a magic trick. It kind of was. He was sampling only single drum sounds from the drum pattern of the song into his own rack-mounted Akai S700 sampler, which was triggered by an Alessis HR-16B drum machine. As he worked the buttons and knobs of that thin piece of nondescript equipment, I stared in awe. After punching in what almost looked like a secret code, he had given me a drumbeat that sounded very similar to the song that I referenced. So let's hear what you got, Melvin said. I gathered the courage to force out a verse for him. I finished abruptly and stared at Mel for approval. That'll work, he said. Go home and finish the rest. I'll have the beat done by the time you're ready. I was a virgin to this process, so it's not like I knew what to expect. But this was way different than what I had imagined. I had always pictured recording in a full-fledged studio with two-inch reels, a giant console filled with faders sitting at different positions, and a recording booth tucked behind a large, plexiglass window. I pictured the rap equivalent of a jam session, where the producer played a beat while I sat on a black leather couch writing verses, fueled by the vibe of the music. But this was disconnected and laissez-faire. I followed his instructions anyway and went home to pen my new song. I had never written like this before, but if this is what it took to create magic, then who was I to question the process? I didn't know Melvin, and he wasn't the friendliest kid I had ever met, but my instincts were telling me to trust him, so I did. The following Saturday, I returned to his crash pad with my notebook, ready to impress him. Mel wasn't much of a conversationalist, and after a bland, what's up? He pressed play, and I heard the most beautiful beat I could have imagined. And after an eight-bar introduction, the drum pattern we had worked on together came crashing in to emphasize the confidence and cockiness of my words. Even the chorus I had written fit as though it were part of the beat. I had received gifts in my life, but never something created specifically for my voice and my lyrics. I knew that I had found my musical soulmate. Every recording session with Melvin was as interesting and unorthodox as his living situations usually were. 
For our second song, I had to convince an older schoolmate to drive us 45 minutes down I-40 to Melvin's friend's home studio in Greensboro. The beat was pre-programmed and only needed to be loaded on a disc. My lyrics were memorized and we recorded them in one take. But to add the element of bro rap scratching throughout the chorus, he was forced to lay on the floor in his stomach and scratch on a single turntable. Frustrating at the time, hilarious in retrospect. But it wasn't smooth, especially for Melvin. On occasion, he was forced to sell all of his equipment to survive. I'd show up to a scheduled recording session to find him hooking up a borrowed four-track recorder and turntable instead of his usual gear, which limited the number of elements we could include in the song. Once we creatively fit the verses, choruses, and beat on the limited number of tracks, Mel would play the hi-hat cymbal portion of the beat throughout the whole song instead of just programming a beat machine to do it. Inevitably, that didn't quite work. He gave a great effort, but I don't think anyone is capable of pressing a button at exactly the right moment like that for three and a half minutes. Mel was hard to get to know, but I found it wasn't impossible. As we recorded together, our working relationship blossomed into a friendship. This strengthened our synergy and made the music we created better and the recording process more organic. As I grew and became a better lyricist, Mel decided it was time for me to become a better songwriter. One day, without warning, he dropped the cheat code on me. 16-8, 16-8, 16-8. That's all you need to know. Forget about everything else. I wasn't sure what he meant. Melvin explained that after an 8-bar instrumental intro into the song, you want to write a 16-bar verse, followed by an 8-bar chorus, followed by a 16-bar verse, and so on. After the last chorus, you'll have about an 8-bar outro, and the song will wind up being 3 to 3 and a half minutes. That's what you want every song, Melvin said. I guessed it was simple enough. From the beginning of my songwriting days with Mario, he taught me how to count bars or measure how long my verses were by writing raps on line notebook paper and keeping each bar on a separate line. Once I wrote four bars, I'd draw a half moon in the margin of the paper and write four next to it, then eight, 12, 16, etc., so that we knew how long our verses were and could fit them into an accompanying beat. One bar equals one line, so if your lyrics are, I like books, they are cool, I love what's his name, cause I'm not a fool, that is two bars. You can generally count bars by focusing on the words that rhyme. Most rap music is written or measured in what's referred to as 4-4 or simple time, so it's easy to count the bars. 16-8 became my way of life to a point where Melvin never even had to ask how long the verses or choruses were when crafting the beat. Just keep it simple, he would tell me. Plus, if your goal was to get your song played on the radio, three to three and a half minutes is exactly the length that you would need your song to be. And believe me, we all wanted nothing more than to get our songs on the radio. As a child, I learned how to make words rhyme to a beat. But with Melvin, I was becoming an educated songwriter, or at least a rap songwriter. The more we recorded, the deeper and more in-depth the records got. Melvin knew I was a fast learner, so instead of just mentioning things to me, he explained them. I learned how and why you'd record certain things on specific tracks. I learned the proper way to record background vocals and the difference between background vocals and ad-libs. Melvin taught me the various recording terms like MIDI, SMPTE, and sync tone. He taught me about mixing and how to listen for certain levels to make sure the song is at its highest recording quality. And by the time he was done with me, our recording sessions sounded like we were speaking a different language to one another and I was miles ahead of people my age. But not all of our collaborations were this harmonious. Like many artists, I was sensitive about my lyrics, but Melvin didn't care. Where I'd want to use my medium as therapy, he'd have to remind me that the goal was bigger. 
I wasn't just making art. I was trying to get into the music business. And in business, there can't be emotions. Josh, don't nobody want to hear that shit, he'd tell me. What? I'd ask. That breakup pussy shit. Don't no damn body want to hear it. You sound soft. Write that shit in your diary, he'd say, almost laughing at me. You know I don't have a diary. Well, you sound like a fucking girl, so maybe you should get one. Grow some nuts. Get over it. Come back with a different song. I was an artist, and I was new to that. Much like a baby bops up and down when they first hear music, I did what felt natural without a care of how I looked or sounded. I had no idea that lyrically I needed to write for a reason and not just whatever was in my head that day. There's a thin line between making art and recording songs, and I was just starting to learn about it. Other times he scolded me for letting my anger come out too aggressively. He knew who Josh was as a person and wouldn't let what's-his-name be too far of an exaggeration of who I was in my real life. Josh was no gangster. Josh was a confident teenager who got frustrated easily and had a bad temper, but by no means was Josh violent. Listen, if you ain't ready to smack or shoot somebody for real, then don't spit that shit in your songs. It's real out here, and you don't want to invite that stuff into your life. That ain't you. He was right. It took a while, but eventually I understood. Melvin's point was valid. Durham was full of people who were, in fact, ready to smack or shoot at a moment's notice, and they would be part of my audience. I wanted to sound confident, but I didn't want to give anyone the idea that I wanted to be involved in violence. At the end of the day, I was a white boy making black music, and it would be imperative for me to keep it honest. I heeded his words. Under Melvin's tutelage, I was getting better, but more importantly, he was teaching me the unofficial rules of being a rapper. If that's what it was going to take for me to accomplish my dreams, then I was prepared to be as receptive as I could. When it came to choruses, Mel taught me to pay more attention to writing something that people could remember. As rappers who were only concerned with being the best lyricists, many of us just wrote miniature verses and used them as choruses or hooks. The true purpose of the chorus, the idea that this repetitive section of the song is supposed to keep the listener's interest, would often get lost in the complexity of the lyrics themselves, making it pointless or counterproductive. Mel made sure that my choruses would be memorable and on trend. You always want to be able to point your microphone at the crowd and have them say the chorus back to you. That's how you know you have a good hook. It was so simple yet so profound. This is how he taught, unplanned, on the fly, somewhat angrily, completely logical. And though it was frustrating at times, I was lucky to have him in my corner. He was truly the Mickey to my Rocky Balboa. With all of the talent and knowledge that Melvin possessed, I wasn't the only person that took notice. Though it was tough to make music industry connections while living in North Carolina, Melvin managed to grab the ear and attention of any and everyone who was at all connected, and he was generous. They were sparse, but as the connections came in, Melvin had no problem sharing them with me, his star pupil. That paid off for me. The first time my music ended up in a major label was through a friend of Melvin's named Charlie Watt. Charlie was an interesting character from New York City who had moved his family south for a better life. And Charlie was a connection with connections. The fact that he was from New York meant that he grew up or was cousins with more people in the music industry than anyone we would ever encounter on our own. He found Melvin to be an incredible talent and me a worthy collaborator. Charlie would occasionally pop up on our recording sessions. Once the two of us had recorded what Charlie felt was a strong demo tape, he made us an offer in his deep, scratchy, Wolfman Jack-style voice. Why don't you guys give me a copy of those songs and I'll get them to my man up at Sony? I wanted to run across the room and hug him, but I remained composed. Mel was more seasoned than I was, so I figured that he would be the spokesperson at this moment. But Melvin simply fiddled with the small knobs on his recording console, obsessing about the music levels as he always did. 
I couldn't take the uncomfortable silence. I had to seize the opportunity. Yeah, I finally shouted before looking over at Melvin to see if he would scold me. Mel, can you give Charlie a copy of the demo? Mm-hmm, Melvin replied sarcastically as if to remind me that he was well aware of the opportunity. Cool, I said trying to get back to my earlier composure. Mel will get you a copy. Dope, let's see what happens, Charlie said. A few weeks passed and I got a call from Charlie. My demo had arrived in his friend's hands and he already had feedback. This felt make or break. My stomach began to tighten up and my teeth felt like they were about to chatter. Charlie's voice sounded like a revved motorcycle. He said you were dope but that you didn't have any hits, he said. No record deal. I was disappointed but my mind gravitated to the silver lining. Someone at a real record label said I was dope. And it wasn't just someone, but someone. Charlie's friend Jay Brown, now the CEO of Jay-Z's Rock Nation, was in a high-level position at Sony, although frankly, I didn't care if he worked in the mailroom. I was doing my best to learn the music business side of what I was doing, but deep down, I was a b-boy. If money were no object, I would have been content battling rappers in parking lots for the rest of my life. This meant that everything I had been working for was taking shape. My confidence rose, but Melvin had a different view. Listen, we need to work on getting you some hits. That shit you right now is cool, but it ain't gonna get you signed. I knew he was right, but I was still high off the compliment and a little cocky. I was a real rapper now, and nobody could tell me any different. In my mind, it would be easy to get signed. I just had to find a different end. It wouldn't be hard. I had a superstar producer to guide me and a willingness to ingest all of the wisdom that he had to impart. Class was in session, and I made a vow to never miss a day. <laughs>